Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Father, we pray that you would be with the message this morning, Lord. We pray that you would be with Rick um, and that you would speak to us through him. We thank you for your love and we thank you for your presence here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you have your Bible with you, we're just going to get right to work. Let's open up to the book of 1 John. And uh, we're going to be in those verses that were just read. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. If you don't own a Bible, I invite you to stop by the info table after the service and grab one of these. Uh, we believe or want everyone to have their own copy of God's Word. We believe it's God's Word. So that's our free gift to you. If you don't own one, grab one by the info or stop by the info table and grab one. Um, as it's been shared a little bit earlier, we're in a series in which we're working our way through the book of 1 John. And this is a book of the Bible that was specifically written so that we may know whether or not we have, in fact, received eternal life. And so that there's those two words together, that phrase, eternal life, is biblical language, biblical wording, referring to having received right standing with God. It means it's to have received eternal life means to be forgiven of all of our sin. It means that we are in fellowship with God and that we can call God Abba, Father, our, our Heavenly Father, that we have this personal, dynamic, genuine relationship with Him. To have received eternal life means that the future is good. The future is bright. Like our days are secure. We know that when we breathe our last breath here, our eyes will open up in glory and we'll be seeing Christ and Lord Almighty face to face. That's what eternal life is. And the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So there are a lot of people who struggle with this. I don't know. Do, have I received eternal life? There's no need for us to wonder or to guess or to doubt. We can know whether or not this is true of us. And the way that we know this is by working our way through this book of the Bible, 1 John, which as I've said so many weeks now in a row, is a series of spiritual tests or manners by which we could evaluate our heart and evaluate our our lives to see what is true of us and what is not because we don't want to be deceived i've got eternal life if we don't and we don't want to be on the other side i don't know that i do but we do so we want to know the reality and you can know by undergoing this evaluation through the book of first john so that you may know what is true and we do so by looking at our life because those who have received eternal life there's some things that are just true of us there's some things that are just fact about how we live our life so today we're taking the relationship test like every week i've titled them all different tests i'm calling this one the relationship test so for you science people you biology people you'll follow me with this those of you who are not have May God have mercy on your soul. Nature, nature is full of symbiotic relationships. Okay, they're all over the place. We see this with the honeybee and the flower, the clownfish and the anemone. Right? We see this with our own gut and prokaryotic bacteria, our gut flora. Like this, these are symbiotic relationships. The word symbiosis means living together, life together. It refers to two different biological organisms living in a close, long-term relationship with one another. 
So the t- there are two extremes in regards to symbiotic relationships, mutualistic relationships and parasitic relationships. Mutualistic makes kind of sense. That means that the organisms that enjoy that relationship, they benefit from one another. There's a mutual advantageousness, a mutual benefiting from the relationship. A parasitic one is the opposite. One benefits at the expense or at the detriment of the other. A mutualistic relationship is about giving. So a flower gives pollen to the bee. The bee offers or gives away to pollinate, to spread that pollen, right? There's a mutual benefiting that takes place there. On the parasitic side, it's about taking. So mutualistic relations are about giving. Parasitic ones are about taking. So a tapeworm takes nutrients, takes life from the very host. It's feeding off of the host. So this is the relationship test. We can determine, you can determine whether or not you have received eternal life by looking at your relationships with God's people with how, how you relate with God's people. What type of relationship do you have with Christians? Is it a mutualistic one or is it a parasitic one? Now, I have said this repeatedly through the book of John, and it is, if you read it, you'll know it's true, that God speaks to us in absolutes. And it's, this is to our advantage that God speaks to us this way. So God speaks loudly and clearly in a way to remove any ambiguity from, it, from what it is that he's trying to tell us what, what it is that we should know. So God speaks in black and white terms. He doesn't speak in grace. right? He speaks to us like, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. It's this or that. There's, nothing, there's no in-between. It's one or the other. It's to our advantage that God speaks to us that way because truth in and of itself is not relativistic anyway. Truth is absolute. And then also God speaks to us this way because we would be misled otherwise. If God spoke kind of in ambiguous, veiled terms, we would, well, how do I know? What do I know? So God and love speaks to us very clearly in these absolutes. So the purpose or the point of 1 John 3, 11 through 18 is that either, either we are in a mutualistic relationship with God's people or we are in a parasitic one. It is one or the other, there is no in-between. That's the point of these verses. In spiritual terms, this is ultimately about love and hate. Either we are in a loving relationship with God's people in which we are giving, in which we are mutually benefiting, like we are constantly giving, or we are in a parasitic one in which we actually have a posture of hostility and anger and hatred toward God's people. So which is it of you? Which is true of you? Are you in a mutualistic one or a parasitic one? It's one or the other. That's the relationship test. So test, that's what we are evaluating of ourselves this morning. Do you give or do you take? Are other people benefiting because of your love toward them, or are you just living off of them like a tapeworm? Which is true, because it's one or the other. There's no in-between. There's no spiritual Switzerland is really what I'm getting at here. All right, so let's just kind of work our way through the text here. 1 John 3.11. We're reminded of the message that we've heard from the beginning. And that message is that we should love one another. We should love one another. This is not just simply good advice. This is not just simply the nice thing to do. This is not just about being neighborly. This isn't sentiment. This is about who we are. So who is the we in that verse? Who are the we that are commanded to love one another? Who are the we? Just back up one verse in the text. Look at 1 John 3.10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So in verse 11, in the context of the scripture, the we are the children of God. The children of God. So there are two types of people. 
on planet Earth. Believers and non-believers. Children of God, children of devil. And there ain't no in-between. Like, it's one or the other. And this goes all the way back to the very, very beginning. So here's how the story goes. There's God and just God. And God makes everything. The cosmos, the heavens, and the earth, right? The universe. He creates this planet. Incredible majesty and power. Then on this planet, he puts this garden. We know it as the Garden of Eden. And it's just paradise, and it's beautiful, and there's all kinds of trees. There's bacon trees. I'm convinced. I know in my heart and in my soul that there were bacon trees, chewy and crispy. Like, there were bacon trees all up in that garden. And so then God... He makes the first man, Adam. He takes of the dust and he breathes life into it and he molds him and he makes the first man and there's Adam. And then he takes from the side of the man and he makes Eve. And there's a, the first man, the first woman, and the, he, God marries them. Like, imagine God officiates the first wedding. Like, he officiates that first wedding ceremony. Incredible thing. Puts him in his garden. All these trees, incredible provision. They, they're walking with God. And when you read the story, you get that sense of closeness. It's splendor, bliss. There's no darkness. And there's no sin. It's just a beautiful thing. Then God tells him, hey, you got all these trees, all these wonderful trees, including the bacon trees. Enjoy them. Uh, but there's this one, one tree in the middle of the garden. Just stay away from it. In fact, don't eat of it. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat of that. You can have all this other stuff. Just don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Then enters the devil into the story, and the story referred to as the serpent. And he manipulates and twists God's words, and he deceives Eve. He tempts Adam. They fall prey to it. They sin. They disregard God's rules. So instead of staying true to the creator, they rebel against the creator. They eat of the forbidden fruit, and then chaos happens. They're, they get scared. They instantly know, oh, we messed up. They hear God walking in the garden, and so they go hide because God shows up. God is holy. He had created this paradise, this universe, this world, this planet, this, this everything. He had just said it is all very good. It's all very good. And the ones that he made in his own image were the ones who ushered in the sin and death and darkness, rebellion into the world. So God, who's holy, who can't just sit by, steps into the scene. He shows up to mete out the consequences of the transgression. And he actually begins by addressing the serpent or the devil. And he says to him in Genesis 3, 14 through 15, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And there it is. From the third chapter of the Bible, we are told two types of people on planet earth. Believer, non-believer, children of the woman, children of the serpent. One or the other. And very clearly, we get there this children of God versus children of the devil. And I say versus inten intentionally and purposely. There is basically going to be no peaceful coexistence between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. God said in those verses very clearly, he declared it, there will be enmity between the two. The word enmity refers to personal hostility, personal animosity. So this isn't just kind of like generic dislike of a person. This is personal, sincere, violent, bloodthirsty hatred of another person. So from the third chapter of the Bible, it is spelled out. There's going to be this very difficult relationship between those who are of the woman and those who are of the serpent. And this is illustrated to us instantly in Scripture. What's the next story that we read about after the Garden of Eden? 
Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced to two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain represents a child of the serpent, a child of the devil. Abel represents a child of the woman, a child of God. And what we see in the story in Genesis 4 is enmity in full effect instantly. So in Genesis 4.8, it tells us that Cain killed Abel. And it was plotted. It was calculated. It was cold-blooded murder. This wasn't like uh, an act of passion in the moment. I just lost control. Now, this was methodical. He worked out the details, made sure he got Abel out in the field alone out there, murdered him in cold blood. So right from the beginning, we see this bloodthirsty personal hatred that the non-believer has toward the believer. If you read the story, you would see that there's a very specific reason why Cain hates Abel. It's because of Abel's righteousness. Because of his righteousness. That's why he hates him. I hate you because you are in the graces of God, because you are a follower of God, because you're a worshiper of God. I hate you. And so he ends up killing him as a result of that hatred. So that's why in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, we're warned, do not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. See, Cain and Abel were blood brothers, but they were not spiritual brothers. And that is precisely what this text is calling our attention to. There are two kinds of people, and the difference between the two are stark it's black and white, it's day and night, it's either this or it's that. The difference between the two people is clear and it's obvious. The children of God love the children of God. The children of the devil hate the children of God. It's one or the other. So we go back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. We, the children of God, we are reminded to love who? One another. Now, as followers of Christ, we are commanded and instructed to love all people regardless of who they are, where they're from, what they look like, their background. It doesn't matter. We are instructed to love all people, correct? But here, in the context of these verses, like if you look at 1 John 3.10, if you look at 1 John 3.14, in the, in the context of the picture that is being drawn here, the command to love is directed primarily toward fellow believers, toward fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Why is that primary? To love our brothers and sisters in Christ first. Because it's a matter of family. Because we are family. Because we share the same spiritual DNA with one another. We have been born of God. We have been reborn by the grace of God through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Because of the atoning death of Jesus on the cross where he shed his blood and he died our death... Through that, we're no longer children of the devil. We are adopted by God and we become children of God, sons and daughters of God. And so the same blood that washes me clean of my imperfections and my unrighteousness and my sin washes you as well. We are co-heirs in Christ, with Christ, with one another. We are co-heirs to the kingdom of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is who we are. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should love each other, right? I tell you, as a dad, I want my Edie and my Ellie and my Emmett and my Eve. I want them to love all people, all of y'all. All of our neighbors, kids at school, their teachers, people on the other side of the planet. I want my kids to love everyone. But I really want them to love each other. I really want them to love each other. So just a couple of nights ago, uh, the, the G clan, we went out for a fancy dinner at the IHOP. Very posh. Lots of panache at the IHOP there. It's what Edie wanted, so we went to IHOP. And on their own, and my kids are young, so Edie's 10, so we're talking about like 8, 10, 6, and 4, right? They're little, and they're young, and they're selfish. On their own, they started sharing each other's food. Hey, 
Ellie hadn't, didn't get any french fries with her dinner, so Emmett offers her french fries, and Edie had eggs because she got breakfast, and Emmett, and she handed Emmett some eggs. And they just started, and me and Jamie just shared a little look, and we just smiled like, yeah. No griping, no complaining, no one saying, can I have a tablet? Can I have a phone? Like, none of that. They're just hanging out, having fun. It was wonderful. Like, I love seeing my kids love each other. It's so good. To this day, my dad, I'm 46. To this day, my dad, once a month, how's your relationship with your sister? To this day, love your sister. You guys are all, you, you're the only family, right? Like, like, you're the brothers and sisters. Like, love each other. Like, there's just something about us parents wanting our kids to love each other, right? And it's good, and it's right. It's not at the exclusion of loving other people, but there's a, something primary, something principal, a priority in loving those who are your family. Do you think it's any different from God's perspective? God is our Heavenly Father. If we're His children, He's telling us, brothers and sisters, love each other. Love each other. And that's the point of the text. That's the the relationship test that we're taking today. So verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Meaning the, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the family of God. Love for the people of God is evidence that we have received the love of God. Love for the people of God is evidence that we have, in fact, received the love of God. It is only right for me to love people that Jesus loves so much that he died for them. How can it be any other way? So if he died for you, he died for me, I'm going to love you. Jesus loved you that much. I got to imitate Christ. That's what we're called to So the question of the day is, are you a Cain or are you an Abel? Are you a Cain or are you an Abel? Is your life characterized with a love toward God's people or is it characterized by an enmity and animosity and a hatred and hostility toward God's people? Which is it? Because there's no in between. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. Now, I think we need to be a little careful here because most of us, probably all of us in this room, is like, well, I don't hate Christians. I'm not an extremist Muslim declaring death upon the infidel of the West. I don't think there are any of those in here this morning. Maybe. If, if there is, praise God, let me tell you about Jesus. Okay? But I, I'm just saying, my, the point is, I don't think that many of us are sitting here going, well, I hate Christians. But I think we need to be a little bit careful because there is no spiritual Switzerland. It's one or the other. Either we love or are in a mutualistic, advantageous, beneficial relationship with God's people, or we are not in thus a parasitic relationship. So I want to unpack the difference between this love and hate thing that I'm talking about. So according to verses 11 and 12, the opposite of love is murder. Well, seems kind of a low bar, right? What is murder? So the word murder in verse 12 is the Greek word esfakten. Almost sounds German, but it's a Greek word. And it literally means to cut the throat. It means to butcher. So to murder is to do violence that robs a person of their life's blood is what murder is. It's taking life. Well, the opposite of taking life is giving life, and that is precisely what love is. Love is the giving of life, the imparting of life. Murder is the opposite. It is the taking of of life. So real quick, what's the difference between being a hater and being a murderer. What's the difference between being a hater and a murderer? Well, it kind of depends. From God's perspective, there ain't none. That's proper Harnett County English. There ain't no difference between the two. Look at verse 15 in the text. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So in God's eyes, to hate an individual in our own heart is equivalent to Straight up killing them. 
Now, that's from God's perspective. From our perspective, what's the difference between a hater and a murderer? Nerve. Nerve. Nerve is the difference. The only reason we all aren't in prison right now for killing somebody is because we don't want to spend the rest of our life in prison. Or because we don't want the electric chair. The only reason all of us, and I do mean all of us, are not serving a life sentence or on death row right now is simply because we don't want to be inconvenienced by it. I mean, let's be honest. I just, well, people might talk bad about me if I do it. Like, we're worried about our reputation. It might get in the way of our next vacation. So... (laughs) So, you know, I want to go to Disney, so I'm not going to kill anybody because I don't want to get to jail. Hatred is the desire to get rid of someone, whether or not we have the gumption to actually go through with it. Murder, hatred, is just like, it's thinking, even for the briefest moment, you're dead to me. I want you gone. I want you out of my life. And to to shun someone from your life is basically social murder, is it not? That's hatred. You're dead to me. Be gone. Like, it's any time that we fantasize about being judge, jury, and executioner in the life towards someone, murder. Murder. That's hatred. That's straight hatred of a person. Now, murder... Biblically speaking, is not simply about the taking of physical life. That's just one way that we can murder someone, but there's other ways we can murder someone. Sexual assault and sexual abuse is murder of someone's dignity, is it not? What is gossip? Gossip is the murder of someone's name. What about when we just keep piling on judgment and guilt and we keep a person, we just keep reminding them of that thing they did in the past and how they were and what they've done. When we keep piling on the shame and the guilt, what are we doing but murdering their spirit? Or what about when we just use these words that demean a person and that tear them down? You're not a man. You're not a man. Or anything that's abusive vocabulary that just destroys a person's heart. Is that not murdering a person's heart? Just know this, that, that it's murder when the only reason that you're happy with a person is so long as you're getting what you want, when you want, how you want. That's murder. That's being a parasite. That's being a tapeworm. I just want what I want. At your expense. I'm taking advantage of you. I'm using you. I really don't care about you. I just care about mine. What do you, what do you think narcianity, little term I've been using a lot recently, narcianity, narcissism, me, 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 my, 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 my. It's all about me. I'm, I'm central in life. We're murdering everyone in that, in that scenario. It doesn't matter our kids, our spouse, coworkers, neighbors. We're murdering everyone when it's everything that's about us because all we care about is what we get from them. We're just leeching. We're a tapeworm on society and on culture and on everyone around us. All of that selfishness is hatred in action. Just different forms. Different degrees, different types, but it's all hatred in action. Any emotional, mental, psychological, spiritual violence that robs a person of their dignity, of their hope, of their joy, or their peace is murder and hatred. Any physical, emotional, psychological, or spiritual violence that robs a person of their dignity, hope, peace, and joy is murder and hatred. The point of the text here is that Christians, those who've received eternal life, we do not harbor hatred, that attitude toward others, especially fellow Christians. Especially fellow Christians. We don't do that. We do the opposite. We don't take, we give. We don't hate, we love. And there is no in-between. It's one Or the other, it's either mutualistic or it's parasitic. Which is it? Which is true of you? You know, I really, the last couple of days, I was really struggling with this message. Part of the reason is that this this text really exposes us. There's no hiding today. 
Like, I don't want to preach this sermon, to be honest with you, because I feel like a total hypocrite, and I feel like so much convicted, conviction about this. There's no hiding. There's no hide and seek this morning. Like, this text, good gracious. And it really causes us to do some soul searching. Like, which is true of me? Which is it? So, here in the text, so look at verse 16. Those who've received eternal life, those who've tasted of the grace of God, love those who've received eternal life and tasted of the grace of God. The bar isn't don't hate. That's not the bar. The bar isn't don't murder. That's not the bar. That's way too low. The bar is the opposite. The bar is a calling to love, to love our fellow brother and sister in Christ to the point that if necessary, we're willing to give our life for them. Good gracious. That's tough, isn't it? Like, I wonder how many of us are willing to, like, sac- like I'm going to die for Jennifer. I'm going to die for Daniel. Like, I'm giving, like, if, if I don't, they're doomed. So I'm giving my, all, my everything, which is my life's blood, for them. Good gracious. And praise God, folks, in here, in here, very few of us, very few, if any, in this room will ever be called upon to have to take that kind of a sacrifice on behalf of a fellow believer for the sake of the gospel. Very few of us will be called to do that. But we are still called to sacrifice and to give nonetheless. Look at verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide him? And the answer is, well, it clearly doesn't. Selfishness is the opposite of love. Selflessness, selfishness is the opposite of sacrifice and giving. So if I don't give sacrificially, if I don't help those who are in need, clearly then God's love must not be in me. It's the point of that verse. And then he goes on to say, little children, let us not love in word or talk, in sentiment, but in deed and in truth. And there it is. Believers, we do not have a parasitic relationship with one another. We have a mutually beneficial, advantageous, loving relationship with one another. And that's how we know that we have received eternal life. So what's true of you? Which is true. I don't mean wishful thinking or hoping. I'm talking about which is actually true. So here at Anthem, we place a high value on covenant church membership. We're not a loose affiliation of Sunday morning attenders. We put a high value on the importance of being a covenant community of faith. And I believe that this is more important today in 2019 in the United States than it ever, ever has been in the history of the United States. Just, just inventory our culture. Just look at the world around. How, how are things trending right now? So before someone got bred and born in the same location, went to school there, grew up there, married there, died there. Now... We're transient. Man, we're moving all over the place, I mean, all the time, almost for no reason sometimes. When we hop from city to city and state to state, and we're just all over the place, right? I mean, that's that's the trend. Uh, Before, people used to be at the same employer forever. My dad worked at Continental Fabrics for 30 years or however long, like three-plus decades at the same company. I did the math yesterday. I'm actually embarrassed to tell you this. I can't believe I'm going to tell you because this is actually personally embarrassing. In the 24 years since I graduated college, I have had 10 employers. 10! I'm a millennial! (laughs) (laughs) 10! I'm including vocational church work in there. That's crazy! 
That doesn't even make sense. Like, that's embarrassing. That's shocking. What are the divorce rates in our country? 40 to 50% of people divorce. Everything in our current culture is trending toward minimizing, marginalizing, devaluing loyalty and devotion. Everything is tracking toward lack of connection, right? Like all of this means that very few people today actually have any kind of deep, meaningful relationships with other people because we don't live anywhere long enough. We don't work anywhere long enough. We don't go to church regularly enough. And so everything is just disconnection, and everything in our culture teaches us to give up on relationships. This is why your fifth, sixth, seventh graders through through college, your kids should not date. You know what dating teaches us? Teaches us to quit on relationships. So we start going with people in fourth grade and in fifth grade, and then we stop going with them. And I don't even know where that expression came from, but we used to go with people back in the day. You go with them where? I don't know. The, 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 I don't know. Fifth period. I don't know. <laughs> but you, you go with people, but then you just break up. And then you go with someone else, you break up, and then you're in high school, and then in, co- in college, and so forth. We have 10, 15, 20 years of just giving up on relationships. Well, I'm not going to be here long enough anyway. We're moving, so I mean, I'm not really going to get involved with church. Everything has trained us to give up. So we lack connections. We lack relationships with, with other people. So there's this journalist, Johan Hari, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, years ago, he gave this really fascinating TED Talk, and he shared some, some research in which he showed that the number of close friends that the average American believes they can call on in a crisis has been steadily declining since the 1950s. So your average American has less and less people that they feel they can call on when things hit the fan because they have less and, we have less and less friends. Less and less close friends. Simultaneously, what's happened, he said, is that the amount of square footage in our homes has been steadily increasing. So here's a quote from Hari in this TED Talk. That's a metaphor for the choice we've made as a culture. We've traded floor space for friends. We've traded stuff for connections. And the result is that we are one of the loneliest societies that there has ever been. The point of his TED Talk was actually about addictions. That was the subject matter of the, the whole talk. Really fascinating. And, and, he, and he said his thesis in the TED Talk was the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And, and I, I, I would have asked him to wordsmith that a little bit better. I don't know that the opposite of addiction is connection. The opposite of addiction is sobriety. But I get his point, right? His point, not to miss it, is that many of our social and individual maladies in life, such as depression and anxiety and addiction, is the direct result of us lacking deep, meaningful textured relationships with other people who are there with us and there for us through thick and thin no matter what. That's the point of the talk. Without those kinds of relationships, we cannot be healthy and we cannot be sound. I love it when secular research just confirms what God told us thousands of years ago. We don't need the research to tell us what God already told us. God makes Adam. Genesis chapter 2. Cool story. Takes the dirt, molds him, breathes life into him. Adam. Excellent. He's the only one on earth at the, at the time. And then God says in Genesis 2.18... It is not good that the man should be alone. And right there, the second chapter in the Bible tells us clearly that we were not created for isolationism. We were created for community. The very very chapter tells us that God hardwired us in such a way that the only way for us to be sound and sane It's by enjoying and engaging actively in meaningful, profound, deep relationships with other people. 
particularly with the people of, of God. What Genesis 2 tells us is that God created us to, for mutualistic symbiosis. Benefiting one another, life with one another. And that is precisely what church is about. I am tired of hearing people refer to the building as church. The building is not church. This is just a building in which the church meets. A worship service is not church. I'm going to church. I know what we mean. This, just a worship service in and of itself is not church. A worship service is what the church does. Church is belonging. Church is being brothers and sisters in Christ. It's being a family, a faith family, the family of God. So back to our text, verse 11 in our text. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That word message in the Greek means declaration. This is the declaration that we should love one another. And that is precisely what covenant church membership is. It is a public declaration that we are going to be like the church in Acts 2, that we're going to be devoted, devoted to God, devoted to one another, doing life together. It is a declaration in which we make a formal agreement in writing with our Herbie Hancock on a piece of paper. John Hancock for some of y'all. But it's a formal commitment in which we say in writing, formally, a pledge and a vow, we, we're going to live in such a way with one another that the world will know us as followers of Jesus by our love for one another. That's what it's about. You know what covenant church membership's about? What it looks like? It's our elder, Phil Hart, going Friday to cut the lawn at the Bonds house because Jimmy had major surgery this past week. Is that not loving? Right? It's Robin uh, Barger, having issues with her pregnancy here in a meal train getting filled up, I'm talking about within 30 seconds, to, for people to go and take her a meal and her and her family and help her out during this time. It is people a few years ago when the Hiltons had a problem with their roof and us showing up there on a Saturday and getting up on that roof and repairing it, following Justin's commands because you don't follow my commands on the roof. You know what, what, what Covenant Church community is all about and, and loving God's people? It's a few years ago, Anthemers chipping in so that Brent Honeycutt and his dad could fly up to New York and watch a Yankees game because that was Rodney's dream. And we chipped in to make that a reality before Rodney passed. Rodney passed. I know. I said Rodney. Rodney. Like, is that not loving? And there's so many examples of this in our church family where, like, my Jamie, like, she'll, she'll go meet with ladies. And, like, she's so gifted and, and good at counseling. And she's helping. She's just walking with them through seasons. Right? She just does it. Like, it, we see this all the time. We see anthemers prioritizing our A-teams, our small groups, where we're there every week, no matter what. We're there. We're going to be together. We're going to engage with one another. We're going to study God's word together. We're going to do life together. We're going to share prayer requests together. This is what anthemers do. It's what it means to be a loving, a loving family. It's Perry and Becky Cotton, our anthem kids, workers, folks. They're over there pretty much four, five, six, seven, eight Sundays in a row. You almost never see them in here. They're sacrificing being able to be like you every week, sitting down and enjoying a worship service. Why? Because they love the kids and they want to pour the gospel into them and they want to make sure that the place is safe and that the teachers are ready and that there's snacks there and goldfish because you can't do children's ministry without goldfish. Making sure everything is right. And, not, and quite frankly, that's not even good or healthy for them. The rest of us should say, no one should have to give up two months worth of worship services. How can I help? So anthemers, if we're going to love each other and sacrifice and give, there's an opportunity. An amazing opportunity. Folks, I've seen it. We don't say it out loud and we don't share names because it's not about the 
people, but we want to show light on it. Folks who have given up vacations, who have given up, maybe had this nice of vacation because someone in the church family was in need. So they sacrificed vacation in order to help somebody. People sacrificing a trip to the beach. Another trip to the beach, another trip to the beach. Why? So I can be here consistently helping out. How can I help? Making ourselves available. Because this is what anthemers do. This is what it means to be in a covenant-loving, mutualistic, beneficial relationship with one another. I could do certain things, but I'm not going to do some things for the greater good. I'm going to make myself available. This is what we do. We build margin into our calendar and into our budget. So not every night is consumed with extracurricular activities. Not every pity of our money that comes in is spent. We make margins so that when the need arises, I can be there physically or I can help financially. This is what it means to love. It's sacrifice. No one ever said this would be easy or simple. This is what it means to be a church family. So I ask, are you a Cain or are you an Abel? Are you taking I'm barely at church, and when I'm there, they better have everything lined up just for me, just right. I may not be there for a few more months, but next time I show up, they better have goldfish for the children in there. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a priority. Like, this is what this means. We are signing up as the people of God to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to be there for one another, not neglecting to gather with one another, but to stir one another up for good gifts, for good works, as Hebrews 10 says. This is the relationship test. Those who've received eternal life are not marked by the absence of hate. We're marked by the presence of love. And love does not just say, I love you, love shows up. Love shows up. Love doesn't disregard needs. Love is never idle. Love never sits on the sidelines. Love rolls up its sleeves and says, what must I give and what must I do to help my brother and sister in Christ? How can I be of an advantage to them How can I intervene and be a blessing and be a help? How can I intervene and be in such a way in their life for their their good to build them up? So, are you in a mutualistic relationship with God's people in which you give? Or is it just kind of around like a parasite, just kind of gleaning and taking and leeching off? Which is true. Is your life characterized by the pursuit of personal comfort? Or is your life characterized by the pursuit of other people's comforts? Is your life characterized by reflecting Jesus? Imitating him, his sacrifice, and his giving, which is true. Man, who wants to preach this text the next time? This is for our good. And we got to know it's good to be confronted with the truth. And maybe some of us just feel a little bit of heat. That's a good thing. And I don't even expect you to fully, completely know the answer to these questions right now. This is about all of us entering into a season of wrestling through this, praying through this, thinking through this, getting some counseling in, in with, for brothers and sisters in Christ to help us to figure out what is true of my life. Am I lying to myself? Am I deceived thinking I have eternal life when I don't? Or how we received it and so that we can go through the season and come out on the other end. It's like, I know that I know that Jesus loves me, that he gave his life for me. I mean, the text tells us very precisely what love looks like. It's Jesus Christ dying on the cross, giving his life. It's him going to a cross to pay for our debt. That's what it looks like. It's him atoning for us, sacrificing, giving his all. The father sacrificing his son. The Son, Jesus Christ, giving his life willingly, joyfully. Why? For our eternal good, that we may benefit forever in the glories of God's presence. So, which is true of you? Have you received the love of God? And just know this. You can't receive that which you don't give yourself to. 
I, can't, I could not have received Jamie as my wife unless I gave myself as her husband. Similarly, you can't receive God as father unless you give yourself to be his child, a follower of Christ. So have you received? And if you have, are you living in a way that demonstrates tangibly your love for those that Jesus died for as well? So let's pray and ask the, the praise team to come and lead us in a closing song. Lord Father, thank you for this morning. I do thank you for your word. It's challenging and it is difficult. Lord, it is a mirror and it exposes all of our wrinkles and all of our flaws. But that is good, Lord. It is a gift of grace and mercy, Lord. You tell us the truth. You tell us how it is. Sometimes the truth hurts, but the same truth that hurts also heals. And so, Lord, I pray that if anyone is here and they've listened to this, Lord, if they've heard the gospel today and before, and they never have stepped into that grace, having given themselves over to you and received your love, Lord, I pray now that if there's anyone there, that this would be the day that they receive you. If there's anyone here, if there's anyone here, who's never said yes to Jesus, would you do so? God loves you. Jesus gave his life for you. He was raised from the dead. He's coming back one day. Eternity is there for the taking for any who desire. Just call on the name of Jesus. Give your life to him and God will forgive you. You'll receive his grace. You'll be a new creation. And you'll live not just today, but all of eternity, knowing God is your father, your leader, your guide, your provider, your protector. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that if we have made that decision in the past, Lord, I ask that it would be re-energized and that we would demonstrate having received eternal life by living in a loving, committed relationship with our church family, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, that we would flesh this out, that it would be real, not just words, but that we would love one another in deed and in truth, that we would live with open hands, sacrificing, giving, not for our comforts, but for the good of others. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.